You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. to the Anarchaeologist podcast. I'm Tristan Boyle, your host, and today I am speaking with David Bell from Queen's University, Belfast. Now, um, what we're talking about today is, of course, not just the standard research questions, but also getting to know Mr. Bell. So thank you for agreeing to speak to me today. Hi, Tristan. Thank you. So can you tell me what your kind of title is and your role here at Queen's? Yes, just I'm uh, currently a postgraduate uh, research student, which basically means I'm doing a PhD in archaeology. Um, I was an undergrad student here in Queens, um, did a three-year um, BSc course in archaeology and paleoecology, um, and was wondering what to do next. And the PhD was a natural sort of progression. Oh, perfect. So did you always want to do archaeology or something you kind of stumbled across? Because I stumbled across it um, while doing my degree. What happened with you? Well, this is obviously a podcast and you can't see that I'm maybe not the 23 or 24 year old you might expect. Um, No, I I was uh, a teacher uh, before I came into archaeology and actually took early retirement from teaching and was wondering what to do with myself. Um, Did the usual playing about with boats, doing a lot of gardening things. <laughs> and then, um, I'm not saying that gardening led naturally into archaeology, <laughs> but... Both um, involved digging. <laughs> exactly. But um, I, I had a natural, sort of the usual, I suppose, sort of interest in things like time team and uh, and that sort of thing, and just, just, just made some inquiries and thought, well, yeah, why not? Why... Why study something that I have to... I've now finished my working life, uh, more or less. I I don't have to study Mm. things vacational, uh, uh, with vacational uh, thinking in mind. I can actually study something I might enjoy. Um, So so this led me into archaeology. And it's quite interesting that you're coming from a kind of position where, you know, you, you had a choice with archaeology, whereas a lot of people kind of just feel as if, you know, especially if they're younger, they're kind of drawn into it and, you know, that that's them set for life. I mean, I think, um, I mean, for me, uh, archaeology is something very, very, there, there are certain kinds of people who go for archaeology. Would you agree with that? Oh, I would. You notice there's, there's, that? There, well, there is. There's, 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 there's the Indiana Jones effect. There's no doubt about it. Um, and with, with Queen's, actually, there's, there's, there's another influence. Um, because Queen's is, 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 is qu- quite cutting edge on, on the osteoarchaeology side of things and yeah. the forensic side of archaeology as well, I think a lot of, um, a lot of people are, are drawn into it from that perspective as well. Um, because, as I say, the osteo the osteoarchaeology is a big component here. There, there are a couple of people in, in our office that are there's more than a couple. There's a few mm. um, that, that are that are coming at archaeology from that perspective. Yeah. So that 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 broadens the scope uh, and the attractiveness of the subject for people. How do you feel being a mature student has like has it changed the way you view university? Did you study? Have you had a degree before archaeology? 
Well, I yes, I was. I was in, I was in teaching, and and, and yeah. actually before that, um, I was in engineering. Um, so you do bring a. Sl- I, th- I think you're possibly a little calmer. I'd like to think yeah. um, it's not all so fr- frenetic. You 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 have time to actually reflect, um, and 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 just try and get things a little bit. I think a little bit more in perspective. I don't mean <laughs> yeah. to sound arrogant. Say, <laughs> I have all the answers. I yeah, certainly yeah. don't. No. But it, it allows for a little bit more more mm-hmm. reflection. It's not it's not all just so 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 such, yeah. such a rush. Oh, perfect. So, is was there is there something in archaeology that really attracts you? Like, I mean, you know, for for myself, it's theory. You know, I love the way theory intersects with everything archaeologists do. But I also think that theory is, um, well, it's people really don't like it, and mm. uh, I want mm. to change that. And, mm. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> good luck. Yeah, no, I know exactly. But uh, what, what what kind of what in archaeology was what is your kind mm. of your thing? Mm. What is it? Yeah, no, I, I I know, and 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 you, you you do have you do have a task ahead of you there with the theory side of things, <laughs> um, but no, mine was art, artifactual um, material culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as I said, came initially from an engineering background, and then into teaching actually technology in secondary schools. So, artifactual archaeology, dealing with the stuff, and the production of the stuff, and what was actually done with the stuff. Um, that that's what fascinates me. Um, so I was was very much drawn to that, and then I suppose superimposed on top of that metal. Um, and I, I so if you take the engineering and, and the, yeah, the technology, it makes sense. It, it yeah. all filters down into no, exactly. and, and and I suppose I, I'm possibly where I should have always ended up if you like working working with with Bronze Age yeah. metal objects, which is what I do now. Do you have a lot of uh, material culture in your house? Do you find that uh, it's kind of like it's maybe a little bit part of you? What do you think? It's, 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 does my does my house look like uh, uh, hoarders? Uh, what, what, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, P- if it happens possibly, in one possibly, place, it happens possibly. in another. Well, well, there could, there, there could be a bit of a bit of overlap. There certainly could. Um, I'd, I'd be the wrong one to judge, but certainly I'm a, I'm, a, I'm very much attracted to the, the material culture of of, of mm-hmm. prehistory, actually. Um, although, uh, I mean, places like the the the, the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum, mm-hmm. I'm very happy to spend a day wandering yeah. around there. You can become very immersed in the past mm-hmm. very easily. Um, but as I say, I, I'm prehistory now, which which is which is a, a very different thing. It's it's a depopulated zone. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the stuff, but we don't, we don't know about the people. And that's actually quite an interesting little piece that you're trying to figure out um, whether uh, Bronze Age swords, is mm-hmm. it? Yes, mm-hmm. are either um, you know actual weapons yes. or if they're the old adage ritualistic exactly. we can't understand it therefore <laughs> ritual yes, yes and i've actually yes. actually seen that in uh one uh the british museum i've seen the oh we think it's a ritual implement because we don't know what it is exactly it's exactly. a terrible i mean how do you get over the well we don't know yeah. well well i mean this, this is the old joke of course everything yeah. we find we don't understand whether it's either ritual or it's a gaming piece yeah so, exactly. <laughs> so if it's uh, well so mm. uh, the ritual thing well it, it's, it's looking at the evidence yeah um, and that really is it. It's looking at the evidence, and the evidence can come from, from either the material itself, from from the the swords, or or, or because we're pushing it back into the Middle Bronze Age, um, to the beginning of all this, um, dirks, rapiers, yeah. and halberds, even uh, into the, the 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 early Bronze Age. 
really trying to look at the material. Now, I, I'm focusing late pre uh, prehistory, obviously, but at Bronze Age, mm -hmm. but not the late Bronze Age, where we do have, we're fairly sure we have real weapons. Yeah. Uh, but in, in going back to the beginning and back into the, the Middle Bronze Age and even earlier, and, and looking at the birth of swords and their predecessors, dirks and rapiers, and what evidence do we see? on this material itself yeah. uh, in, in the shape of use wear analysis mm -hmm. um, the actual nicks knocks dents notches all of that and and can we relate that to them actually being used in combat mm -hmm. and uh, i was just wondering actually um you seem to have a few different names for swords could you run us down what you actually find in prehistory for swords and i don't know about swords so what is it what's the difference between a dirk and a rapier and a halberd Okay. Okay. Go on. Um, very simplistically, if, if we if we start with the early Bronze Age, with, with the beginning of metallurgy, yeah. basically, um, it's it's when 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 metal became to be used. One of the very first things they used it for was, oh, this is a knight. We can make nice sharp things to hit people with here. Yeah. Is the <laughs> assumption? Is the assumption? Well, yeah. Now, so we start off with a very strange. Well, obviously knives and and, mm. and daggers oh, yeah. are very easy to recognise. The 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 halberd's a bit of a strange thing. It's a, a big triangular copper uh later on bronze um pointy th a, a, a dagger on a stick it's okay, been described a dagger as. On a stick, right yeah um in fact in german that's I think, literally what it is <laughs> um but we're very unsure about how they were used or even what they were used for then you have the obvious spears um very very spearhead but then possibly leading on uh, um, not not evolved from. A, I'm not going to get down into the argument oh, about evolution oh, and all the rest. Oh, oh, oh. But de a development from yeah. a dagger uh, possibly would be um, a dirk, a, a lengthening. Yeah. And then the dirks, rapiers. That distinction's all. Uh, uh, it's it's a bit of a non-distinction really. It's it's oh, it's okay. different terms that have been used. Um, I think standardising it into rapier. It's a long thin yeah. blade. Not not like your classic leaf shaped. Um, a slashing sword, but they, these are quite long, thin, pointy things basically. And yeah. they assume they've called them rapier. They, they, were, they got stuck with the name rapier, um, and the assumption is that they're a thrusting weapon, okay. rather than the classic slashing yeah. sword. So, uh, which which comes later on, which was comes uh, kicks in at the very end of the Middle Bronze Age, and and carries on through uh, the late Bronze Age. So we, we see quite a few different swords kind of appear, mm. um, one uh, almost one after another. Then mm. obviously, as with anything in the past, you have a mix of different um, mm. bits and pieces. How how do you um, how do you kind of place these in time? I mean, do, uh, do you do you kind of like is there styles? Yeah, um, yeah. Typology. For typology. Typology. Basically. Yeah, uh, there's uh, there's no interesting dating methods used like potassium argon. Oh or, no 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 no. Well, uh, the, the, no. Um, some if we're very lucky. If we're very lucky, we'll get um, some some of the organic hilt material okay. still trapped around it. Now we we did there uh, recently um, some radiocarbon because of course Queen's yeah. um, uh, leading the field in in radiocarbon dating. Um, so a, a, an actual halberd that had been had an interesting story in itself. Actually, it was recovered from metal detectorists in, a, in an amnesty down in Dublin, oh. um, and uh, they'd been a bit naughty out with their metal detectors, um, and, and had this collection of stuff, which eventually they handed in. Um, and uh, Ned Kelly actually managed to negotiate that whole thing. It was all a bit, <laughs> a bit dramatic. Oh, yeah. But um, 
but there was a, there was quite a bit of wood yeah. um, stuck around the rivets of this thing, and we were able to date that um, quite accurately and put that nicely into the early bronze Irish early bronze age where it belonged. Yeah. Um, on typological um, evidence, so so that was nice. It's, it's reassuring when you find yes yeah, that yeah. is that that yes we're right about that, and then then we use just a normal um, typological morphological sequence. Um, that you'd use for basically any sort of artifact, mm-hmm. and and then we, as I say, we get lucky occasionally. We get a bit of organic material, and that just firms it up. Yeah. Um, so so between those two methods, no, the the only the only the only way we'd actually look at the metal would be um, XRF, really, just yeah. look, look at looking at what it's composed of, and that's not terribly helpful because it's I, th- I think quite often the metal are made from what's available. Yeah, quite often. No, exactly. I'm actually wondering, coming back to preservation conditions mm-hmm. of these swords. I mean, where are they? Uh, typically, I know Ireland has a lot of peat bogs, and oh, that, yeah. those are all oh, acidic, yeah. Yeah. and so that means that obviously good organic preservation. But I mean, how? How? What is the best preservation conditions for metals? Since that's your kind of area. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, it, well, I, I, as for just about anything else, basically anaerobic. Get the arrow out of you know out of yeah. the picture. Get the oxygen out of the picture. Get get you know get the basically the the the, the gaseous environment out of the picture, and things are things are fine. Um, stuff that comes out of riverbeds, generally very good. Um, stuff that comes out of bogs too can be very good. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff that comes out of the sea can be, as we know from salmon and everything else, can be, you know, the, the salt water is not great. Yeah. Um, stuff that comes out of funerary contexts. Yeah. Disastrous. We don't have that in in, in Britain, um, okay. because they didn't they didn't really go for for putting weapons in with bodies. But certainly in in, in another area that I'm looking at, um, Southeast Iberia, the Argaric cultures there, um, mm. they did they they put their bronze work their their, their weaponry, uh, and, and 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 toiletries and everything else. But weapons certainly in with the bodies, and it it doesn't it doesn't. The weapons don't come out of it well. Okay, <laughs> I guess that's because of all the decomposing exactly, exactly materials. Exactly. So, do you get to actually? I mean, do you get to do a little bit of experimental archaeology, like play with swords and stuff? Is that your kind of stuff as well? I mean, I'm just wondering. You know, like obviously, you want to look at. Um, I mean, did you get? Do you ever do replicas, or is it just analysing yeah. what you have? Yeah. I mean, the the the, the, the experimental archaeology, yes, the, the the casting and and the experimenting with it is a very big factor of it. It's a very big part of it. It's what I mentioned earlier on the nicks, the knocks, notches, and all the rest of it. Yeah. That repertoire, it's it's where they're developed from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all very well looking at at at, at, at a some sort of damage on the edge of a blade of a, of, a, of a weapon and saying, oh, that's obviously you know where two people whacked two two swords. But you can't be sure yeah. until you actually try it with a couple of experimental pieces. That's been to other people are doing that, mm-hmm. thankfully, because that, that that's an awful lot of work in itself oh, yeah. and no expense. Um, exactly. So so other people, thankfully, have done that. There, there, yeah. Andrew Dolphini in in, in in Britain there's done a lot of work on that. Um, in Newcastle, there there are various people, uh, Barry Malloy down in UCD, th- that have done all this work, thankfully. Um, so, so there is there is a repertoire there of material, of mm. uh, uh, um, damage uh, yeah. types that we can turn to. Yeah. No, the only experimental archaeology I've done is infinitely more boring. Um, drilling holes um, in, in, in bronze and copper with a um, flint drill bit using a bow drill 
to see oh. if that was at all possible. And it is. It works very well, surprisingly. What was that? To, what was that to discover? Like, what, uh, were you finding holes in swords? Or, yes, yes. Or how to shape the sword? Or what was that? Well, the, the big, the big deal. The big, one of the big deals um, between, as it was saying, the, the development of, of long bladed metal weapons would would be the difference between the rapier and the sword. And the main difference is the attachment of the hilt. The attachment of the hilts in the Middle Bronze Age rapiers was was pretty disastrous. Um, they tended to use a, a couple of rivets right out the very peripheral edge of the butt mm. uh, um, to attach the organic handle, and that it was it was it was unfeasible. It, it broke. The, the, the rivet holes broke regularly. You see this in the record: breaks, repairs, everything else. They didn't use a hilt that ran right through, a tang that ran right through, and, and security. So I wondered why. I mean, it's assumed that they did this because it was thin metal, easy to punch drill didn't really know mm-hmm. um, and I thought well I'll see how they did drill holes I'll try it with what they had available and I thought bow drill we know that you know mm-hmm. bound to have had that why um, flint uh, what are the, you know they didn't have metal they didn't have high-speed steel you know so, yeah. so we thought okay well, well I'll try tipping a piece of wood animal bone actually with a bit of flint mm-hmm. and work that in the bow drill and see if that's a top and I was surprised it works mm-hmm. now it takes, you could watch a football match while you're doing it to drill one <laughs> hole. It does take about an hour and a half yeah. to get through about a millimetre and a half of... Uh, uh, yeah, but... In a slave economy, who cares? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we dare say that it was either children or slaves that were doing that sort of work in, 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 mm-hmm. you know, in, in late prehistory. So you can't, uh, but you, the point is you could drill a hole anywhere. Yeah. They chose to drill it out at the very edge because they wanted to show maximum metal they weren't worried about a good structural connection. It, 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 sorry, is my hypothesis. <laughs> that's no problem. No, no. Um, so, so that's that really started to answer your question. Experimental yeah. archaeology. No, <laughs> no, 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 no none point. of the great sort. You know, uh, yeah. fencing. <laughs> no, drilling holes. <laughs> that, that's the height of my experimental. That, that's really good. And obviously, um, you've got quite a big um, department here. You've mm. got a lot of people mm. that you work with. I mean. Uh, I've seen in archaeological academia a lot of people work together, you know, from all different parts of the world. I mean, where was have you had a chance to collaborate with other people from other parts of the world? Absolutely, yes. It's, it, it, it is certainly one of the features I was pleasantly surprised with, just how outward looking. Not only not only archaeology, Queens and archaeology. It's it's a very much an international collaboration. It really is. There are no boundaries. Um, my work particularly has taken, I mean, as I mentioned, um, southern Spain, but I've also, I've just not long back from northern Spain, um, done work in France, Belgium, all across the British Isles, um, because the, 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 that's where the Bronze Age went. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it went it, it went all across Europe, um, and there are, really are no boundaries there, and it is very much international collaboration on that, um, and certainly in our department, we, well, Starting with with the staff here in Queens, we have people uh, from Germany, from uh, uh, America, um, France, all across the world. Um, obviously, the British Isles. Um, so, so it's it's very much an international thing. And what what do you think um, if if somebody was on the cusp of deciding about studying archaeology mm. and doing archaeology? Oh, I mean, yeah. are there things that you would have liked to know before you started studying it? Is there something that you would like to share as a kind of a little caveat? Going straight on from the, 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 the international aspect of, of archaeology, languages 
are surprisingly important. Um, English is, is, is very much the international language, it's just about everything is, but you'll often find, on, on, a, on a paper, you'll find that the abstract will be in, in either French and English or Italian and English or whatever it may be, and English, which is just enough of an insight to be annoying because yeah. <laughs> you, you then you're told about the stuff you can't read about further on down in the paper. Exactly. So, now, thank God for Google Translate. But <laughs> languages... Um, I, I was, yeah, I, I didn't foresee that languages would be so important in archaeology, and certainly, from my perspective, Spanish. I've had to learn some Spanish and French. I've had to learn, <laughs> uh, but I would imagine, um, depending on what field you're in, yeah, because there are there are it, it, it does vary, mm. um, and certainly archaeology, um, French Spanish is certainly two useful languages for Bronze Age yeah. archaeology. There are other fields, other other spe- spe- specialisms within the field where different languages would apply. Yeah, that's good. And just finally, I mean, uh, do you ever do anything online? Is there any, um, do you go online for Twitter, do LinkedIn? Uh, how do you feel archaeology online is at the moment for someone like yourself? Well, it, it is very important, growingly important. In fact, we, Queen's are offering courses to the postgrads in social media and using social media. Um, and, and Twitter and, and, and it is particularly and obviously Facebook and all, all the other uh, uh, mediums are, are seen as very important and ways of spreading the message. What is the message of archaeology? I mean, just like I know that's a bit of a curveball there because yeah. it's a question I've asked myself several yeah. times before. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, and that's one of the biggest um, things that any archaeologist comes up against is what is the use, what is the point of archaeology? I mean, yeah. beyond learning about the past. I mean, mm. what do you think? What do you think archaeology is beyond? Beyond that? learning about the past? Yeah, what exactly. Do you, mean? <laughs> <laughs> you can't be dismissive about that. No, no, that, that, that is the point. I mean, the, the past informs the, the present. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're, we're nothing but product of the past. Um, we, we've no idea about the future, so let's not worry about that. Um, oh, sorry, let's, that, that was, <laughs> let's worry a lot about that. <laughs> yeah, no. but the, the point is, yeah. the, the past does inform the present. Mm-hmm. We, the, what I'm working on is about weapons, but it's not just about the weapons in the set. You've got to put those weapons into the hands of people. Yeah. Very important. And it's... Our, our, yeah, the whole thing about my project is is where early Bronze Age weapons, weapons as such, whether, whether they're being used as weapons or where they uh, symbols, symbols of state, symbol of power, some sort of symbolic things. And that goes back to society. It goes back to um, the formation of state because, I mean, it's Tilly, Tilly's old uh, war makes state, state makes war thing. Yeah. Um, there's that social complexity, and the, the, the development mm-hmm. of social complexity is very much linked to, to the development of material culture. The two are, you, you can read one from the other. Yeah. So if you want to know about the past, you have to look at, at what there is from the past, and certainly with the late prehistory, the clues in the name, we don't have anything written down. Mm-hmm. We have to look at the material and be able to interrogate that material and interpret that material. And that tells us about how people were living in the past. I'll end up arguing, and I'm, I'm going to head of myself, but I think I'll end up arguing, no, they weren't the barbaric savages mm-hmm. that some people would, would, would try and paint uh, uh, cultures in the past, and that these weapons weren't actually being used as weapons of mass slaughter. Not, not at all pacifying the past, um, but just saying that 
It probably wasn't as bloodthirsty as some people would choose, possibly for their own agendas, yep. to make out. And you have to remember that everyone's taken an agenda mm-hmm. into archaeology, and it's been very much abused in the past, very, very much abused. And the more informed we are about the topic, the more we can make rational decisions about it. I couldn't say I've said it any better myself. I, I really, I think we're definitely uh, definitely agreement. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic, and uh, I wish you all the best of your research. Thank you very much. study of archaeology but we don't do dinosaurs did aliens build stonehenge did the easter island statues walk did the vikings colonize midwest america what does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this listen to the archaeological fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries hoax or fact learn to tell the difference with dr kenneth fader and co-host sarah of the archie fantasies blog Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Well, thank you very much for sitting down. Uh, I am Tristan Boyle from the Anarchaeologist podcast, which is part of the Archaeology Podcast Network. And today I'm sitting down with, oh, I've forgotten your name. Jill Almond. Jill Almond from the Queen's, from Queen's University, Belfast. Thank you for coming and uh, speaking to me today. So let's start off at the start. Um, So you are currently doing research here at Queen's. I am, yes. What is the basic premise of the research you're doing? Um, well, I'm researching a particular type of Edwardian lunatic asylum, which is called the Colony Asylum, and it's very different to the traditional kind of image of asylums that we have, which are very large, and plenty of them exist, very large um, buildings with huge wings stretching out you know, for um, a long distance, um, great monolithic structures. These are... Uh, buildings that were constructed as separate villas and they were try- they were trying to create a kind of atmosphere of a village uh, rather than a um, sort of overbearing institution and I'm researching those so that's that's something that's actually quite specific how yeah. I mean how did you start uh, getting into archaeology I mean what happened well, I didn't do my undergraduate degree in archaeology. In fact, what happened was I've done various things in my life. Um, I had been raising my kids for a while, and then I got a job um, researching histories of listed buildings for um, the local environment agency. So they were doing a survey of all the listed buildings in the north of Ireland, and I was involved in researching the histories of some of those buildings. And um, at the time, I decided that this was work I really, really loved and I wanted to stay in. And I was looking for a way to become qualified in it uh, and develop my career in it. And I looked to do a master's in history, but 
the historical folks really weren't so interested in the fabric of the buildings and the structures and the bricks and mortar, um, the kind of stuff that interested me. So I then got in touch with the archaeologists at Queen's and they were doing a master's which suited me much better. It had an element of the archaeology of buildings and um, it was much more interesting for me from that point of view. So I decided to do the master's here. While I was doing it, <coughs> we were required to do a dissertation and um, it just so happened at that time I was researching the history of a site that was being considered for listing just outside Belfast which was one of these very interesting and unusual asylum sites. And the minute I saw it, I knew this is, this is quite a big thing. It needs a lot more work. It needs somebody to really look into this. I remember my boss saying to me, actually, somebody needs to research mm -hmm. this. And I was saying, well, it to take a PhD. Um, so I, put it, I did that as my dissertation. And then in due course, I put it forward as a PhD proposal. And it was accepted, and now I get to research them full time. So I went on from researching just that site to researching some similar sites in Scotland and also one in Germany, which turned out to be the inspiration for the others. That sounds really good. And obviously, I mean, um, obviously, there was a bit of a gap between you doing your first degree and now yeah. uh, your PhD. How do you feel it's different being a student now or I mean or a researcher now as opposed to then? Um, I think there's a lot greater emphasis for academics on money and how you're going to get money and how you're going to bring in funding. I mean you get strongly the impression that if you're going to go further, if you're going to go into academia then you need to show evidence that you're getting money from somewhere. It's this whole idea of the university as a business and being self-sustaining and I don't think that was really there when I was an undergrad it was more uh, you know mm. research or academia for its own sake and obviously um, obviously that's a persistent problem for anybody I just want to know I mean obviously um, these colonial uh, was it these colony uh, asylums yeah I mean are they predominantly in the UK or does that allow you you mentioned also Germany I mean yeah. how far does the these do these uh, go I mean do these go over into America or is it just a European thing they were very very prevalent in Germany they're dotted about various places in Europe and there are um, colony asylums in they're actually called segregate asylums in the US okay so they are all over the world and they were to a very large degree inspired by a single example, in fact, in Germany called Altscherbitz. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's quite an interesting... Um, does Altscherbitz uh, still exist or is it... It does, I've been there, yes, I've recorded it, <laughs> I've oh, photographed right. it. Um, it's still uh, a psychiatric hospital, so that makes it quite difficult because yeah. um, they were pretty reluctant for me to go in inside any of the buildings and inside can be very interesting I did manage to get in a couple but um, that has been kind of a persistent problem even with the sites in the UK um, you either have derelict buildings which are too dangerous to go into or you have buildings which are still in use usually for psychiatric purposes and mm -hmm. people really don't want the sort of um, 
the privacy of the patient's compromised or for other reasons don't really want you to go in. So what kind of um, recording do you do? I mean, obviously in archaeology, there's the kind of standard field notes that anybody would take, but there are new technologies like photogrammetry, uh, people using drones. Uh, what sort of uh, techniques do you uh, employ in recording this stuff for your research? Um, at the moment, I'm just using plain old-fashioned photography, I'm afraid, <laughs> and measuring. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my main, I suppose my main um, concerns in looking at the buildings are the architectural style, the scale of them, the size of the windows, the positioning of the openings. Um, I think that perhaps in the future of photogrammetry and things like that, laser um, uh, scanning could be useful for me but they're not essential for the kind of information I need for my PhD. So I think we've decided that I'm going to put those skills on hold for the moment. (laughs) And um, they could be something that I go into. Um, In terms of presentation of the material, they'd be useful. Yeah. But um, in terms of gathering information, they're not so essential for me. Well, that's always the balance of it, isn't it? It's it's always yeah. working out if there's not, the technology is going to be useful enough. I mean, this is the thing about any sort of archaeological venture, especially when money's involved. It's always a question of, is it the right tool for the job? Yeah. And things like that. I mean, um, how has it been here at Queen's? How have you felt? Like, uh, what's the department like? How are the other people? Do you get a chance to work with them? I think it's a really great department, very friendly department. Um, I've been somewhat involved in the SWAM award, do you know mm-hmm. what that's yeah. all about? So That's um, the w- women in science? It's women in science, but it's all about equality really for everybody. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel that the department's really committed to those kind of issues, that kind of gender. And um, I suppose I'm slightly in the minority. There aren't that many historical archaeologists, and certainly I would say my colleague, Wills McNeely, is the only one who's working on even around the same time period as me. Um, So in that sense, if you're not a digger, it's sometimes harder to persuade people that you're the real deal, if you know what I mean. Is there a little bit of a, a little bit of a conflict attention there between historical and prehistorical archaeologists? Do you get into a little bit of a, a bar fight in the cafeteria? Um, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't no. say it's a bar fight, <laughs> but um, certainly. I mean, I would characterize archaeology as being about materiality, as being about stuff and how we interpret stuff. And we're all doing that. But there are, I think there are archaeologists who would see it much more traditionally in terms of, um, you know, getting stuff out of the ground, really. Prehistory. Things that you can't Mm -hmm. interpret any other way except by by having the stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas I have other sources as well. I have the the archives and the published materials and stuff like that as well. That must be quite amazing to have the access to those historical documents to yeah. kind of contrast with a modern perspective because ultimately um, all that's missing, as you said in the past, is that comparative documentation. I mean, if only we knew how people would use ancient like equipment and ancient... I mean, that would be, in most ways, quite fascinating and not just, you know, the old... Uh, excuse oh it's just ritual yes (laughs) but like I mean how do you find people 
treat um, uh, the way our, like these asylums are constructed with their architecture. I mean, uh, obviously in modern day, the asylum is used in like media to kind of convey a very clinical, very drab, boring uh, kind of building in contrast to its inhabitants, which are usually, you know, um, have psychiatric problems. And, you know, that contrast is often used to kind of show a dramatic difference. How, how, how have you found the accounts of the past? Uh, that describe these particular asylums? You have to kind of rid yourself of your preconceptions, and those are sort of the preconceptions of popular culture about asylums, which um, create them into these, anything from drab and boring to literally horrifying, spooky, terrifying places, which is partly to do with, um, I think, a fear of mental illness itself, a fear of the people as much as of the buildings. Um, So you have to kind of strip that away, and I think in some senses, there's a slight, um, that kind of infects a bit the historiography of asylums in that um, the historiography kind of claims that people started off with this very utopian idea of what they could do with environments and with buildings. And that gradually tailed off and in the end they were just sticking them, putting them away in big bins. Um, You can't see my quote marks there, but... um, (laughs) I, I, my feeling is that that was sometimes and in some places true, but it wasn't always true by any manner of means. And these places that I'm looking at certainly have a very utopian element looking, uh, going through them, that they were concerned to create these very kind of perfected environments which allowed a lot of contact with... Um, uh, beautiful nature and wonderful views and um, encourage people to get out in them and to um, work in them and they actually had relative to the environments people would have come from in their normal lives they actually had interiors that were pretty lavish and there were even quite a lot of complaints about how much money was being spent on these very, very comfortable interiors, things like grand pianos and elaborate mouldings and lovely carpets and reading material and things like that. Um, so there was definitely attempt, an attempt to um, create an, a perfected environment that we don't really um, appreciate these days, I don't think. It's quite interesting. You must... Um... Uh, briefly like over the history of mental illness itself mm. you know to p- provide these building in the context it just reminds me of the time i was reading about uh, foucault's madness and his yes. history of madness is absolutely fascinating where actually in ireland particularly there was this kind of idea that madness was almost being like touched by god and it was yeah. a very divine almost divine inspired thing it's like the blind person who's the seer of the future Yes. And stuff like that. I mean, that that must come into some sort of context in these kind of discussions as well, do you think? Well, you do get the impression that there wasn't quite the fear and the unwillingness to deal with um, the mentally ill that we sometimes seem to experience today. Um, you had environments which were much more open. So the um, the hospitals that I'm looking at had no walls around them they were open so people could and did escape quite often 
And I have a, I mean, in actual fact, the medical superintendent in the one outside Belfast said that if people got away and they were living happily in the community, he didn't bother to go and get them because he thought that was fine. There was no, um, there didn't seem to be quite the same sort of rigid division, the rigid need to separate off um, the mad from the sane. Um, so yeah, maybe there was an appreciation of mental illness in that way. And this is um, obviously a lot of people will be like, well, these mental asylums, they're long, like they're no longer used. What's you know, they're now some of them are used for modern psychiatric help. I mean, what's the point in doing this research? And what would you say to people like that? Well, these buildings still exist in our communities. In many cases, of, as I've been saying, that they're, they're still being used. I think a close look at what was built in years gone by really helps us to understand how mental illness was understood then and this can inform the way that we think about it now and actually there are it's informative both because of the similarities and because of the differences people think that they're creating something new when they talk about oh we've built this lovely light airy asylum Oh, they don't talk yeah. about asylums, obviously. Oh, we built this yeah. lovely light, airy psychiatric <laughs> yeah. ward, and you think, well, actually, that was going on 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, I think it's important to understand what was happening then um, so that we know where we're going, really. Yeah. I mean, obviously, here, like at the Podcast Network, we're quite familiar with getting messages out there that don't usually get, you know, talked about. I mean... How do you see yourself um, doing, uh, how do you see yourself getting the information from your research out into the big world beyond just the journal publishing? Have you, do you have an online presence? What? Um, I have a Twitter handle, at Historic Asylums. Oh, very nice. Um, I tweet from time to time. I have considered starting a blog, but I don't think that's going to happen until after I have my thesis in because... Um, I just think it's too much writing for oh, me yeah, to be no, getting into. <laughs> no, I completely understand that. And uh, now that's a, just a bigger question about archaeology. I mean, uh, once, once I started studying archaeology, my opinion of it completely changed. I don't know, how do, you, how do you feel having done historic records and then going to study archaeology? I mean, how did, um, how did, the, how did your opinion of archaeology change? I think for a while I felt a little bit uncomfortable here for the issues I've mentioned mm -hmm. previously, that I felt that maybe I wasn't a real, quote, archaeologist. <laughs> um, and that I suppose I've always felt that my, my real interest is buildings. And um, I could, in theory, be looking at buildings from in a history department or in a geography department or some other um, context. But as time has gone on, I've actually felt more and more at home here mm -hmm. because um, because it really is archaeologists who think about stuff, who think about things, who think about what things mean. Um, and I don't think that there's the same kind of appreciation of that in other academic spheres. So I'm glad I'm here in the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, and uh, I'm glad as well. I uh, just want to wrap up with a like, final question is, I've just been asking people, you know, if, if, you, if there was something that you would have liked to known about studying archaeology before you began, what would that be? 
if you had a chance to say to somebody wanting to start a yard, start archaeology, what would advice would you give them? Um, probably archaeology can be anything, really, or most things, most things about stuff anyway. And if you don't be afraid that what you want to do isn't doesn't fall within the parameters of what other people have been doing, be be wild, go out on a limb, do different stuff. Perfect. Thank you very, very much. And uh, we'll hope the, I'll make sure everything is in the uh, episode description of all your little online stuff. Great. Thank you. Thanks. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.